You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Marshall Curry. Uh, Marshall, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Marshall. I'm the director of a few films, including A Night at the Garden. Uh, yeah, so that's what we're going to be discussing today. So thanks for coming on today. I think you're the first uh, Oscar nominee to appear on this particular podcast. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about this uh, documentary short uh, called A Night at the Garden. Uh, it was nominated for... <laughs> Uh, for nominated for an Oscar in the best documentary short category. Uh, first of all, this is like a silly question, but like, uh, did you go to the Oscars? What was it an honor just to be nominated? Sure. As everyone says, yeah. what, what yeah. was that experience like? Yeah, no, it was great. Um, uh, I had been a couple of times before with with feature length documentaries, um, but it's it's not something that you get used to. It's sort of crazy and in, in, in a fun way. Um, and I uh, was able to take my wife and kids and a bunch of folks that worked on the on the film with me, and um, and we had a great time. Yeah, walked the red carpet and uh, didn't win, but but had fun. Cool. Um, so th- so people can go check out this uh, documentary short for free online. The the website is. Can you tell me what a the night at the is? garden. Yep. It, so the movie's called A Night at the Garden. The website is anightatthegarden.com. Okay, and there will be a link below for that as well. And right. uh, this is truly a, sh- a short documentary short. It's like <laughs> it seven minutes. Um, right. So people can <laughs> maybe even just uh, pause right now and go check it out, and you won't <laughs> spend that much extra time. <laughs> but how would uh, how would you describe what the film is about? Well, as you mentioned, it's it's very short. In fact. I was told that it was the shortest documentary nominated in 50 years. So, uh, so I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing, but, um, but there it is. So, uh, and it is entirely made of archival footage shot in 1939, um, during a rally in Madison Square Garden where 20,000 Americans gathered to celebrate the rise of Nazism. So it is not a, uh, not what people normally expect when they think of Madison Square Garden. Or American rallies in general, right? Um, and yeah, so the so there's a lot of interesting things about this. Um, one is you've kind of brought back to light this uh, very strange historical event that uh, I I don't think I'd ever heard of before. Probably most Americans have have never heard of. No. Uh, where did you first hear about this? Yeah, like most people, I had never heard of it. Um, and, uh, I was at dinner one night with a friend who's a screenwriter and he told me he'd been working on a screenplay about New York that takes place in New York in 1939. And so as he was doing research, he came across this rally and he told me about it. And I actually didn't fully believe him until I got home that night and looked it up. And sure enough, he was right. And, uh, I discovered that there were some short, you know, 10 second clips from the rally that, that it had been filmed. Uh, that were part of historical documentaries. And so um, I thought, well, if there's 10 seconds of this thing, there's got to be more than that. And so I got an archival researcher who is a friend to uh, to start looking around, and he started to uncover a lot of this footage. Some of it was in the National Archive. Some of it was in UCLA's archive and Grinberg archive. And there were a number of places that had pieces of the footage. Nobody uh, had ever gathered it all together as far as we could tell, though. Um, 
And like the National Archive, for instance, even had film that had never been scanned as a high def digital file before. So we paid their lab fees to, to have this stuff scanned and gathered all the footage. And, um, and once I saw it, my jaw just dropped. Yeah. So it's it, like, like I said, I encourage everyone who's listening to this and has any interest in American history to uh, watch this documentary. It's seven minutes long. Um, and you'll see some yeah pretty remarkable things. So another thing that's, uh, was an unusual choice that I, I guess you made was, uh, there are no talking heads in this documentary. There's no, right. uh, voiceover. There's some brief, st- uh, text that appears on screen, but it's, you know, 95% of it is just this historical footage. So how did you go about deciding that that, that was the way you wanted pr- to present it? Well, when I first saw the footage and thought I wanted to make something from it, I, assumed that I would interview some historians and make something more traditional, I guess, where I would explain the context of it. And almost on a whim one day, I decided to just see what it would feel like if you just edited together the footage as if it were a verite documentary or a narrative film and where, you know, you watch movies all the time that don't have a talking head appearing on screen to tell you what you're seeing. And you just lean into it and you try to make sense of what you're seeing and so um, when I did that, I, uh, I liked it. I felt like it had a real power in the mystery of what it is and the kind of surreal feeling of seeing this footage where <coughs> there's 20,000 Americans in Madison Square Garden. There are American flags. There's a huge 30-foot portrait of George Washington with swastikas on either side of him. The marquee outside builds this event as a pro-America rally. And that combination of um, American symbols of American patriotism interspersed with with the symbols of Nazism and the language of Nazism and the violence that eventually you see on on screen, on stage, um, is uh, was really, it was just weird and shocking and sort of confusing. And the confusion that it, that it, creates for an audience as they try to figure out like, what is this? How did this happen? How did I not know about this was actually more powerful and, and pulled the audience in, um, more powerfully than perhaps it would have if I had, um, just presented the history lesson. Yeah. So you see, you start off with some shots of, uh, New York City and then some cops on horses, uh, outside and there seems like there's, you know, there's some people maybe protesting or something. It's hard to, hard to tell. And then you go and you see the marquee at Madison Square Garden, um, that says, you know, pro-American rally and it also has like, you know, boxing matches or something like hockey happening. on Wednesday. Yeah. yeah exactly. The next day is just, you know, the, this is just one event among many at Madison Square Garden. Um, and, and then, yeah, then you go and you see, you know, the, the floor is filled with chairs and there's, uh, it looks like two thirds full and then people start marching in with flags and it's hard to tell what the flags are. And then you see, you cut to the stage end, there's this huge, um, you know, mural or painting or something of George Washington. Um, right. and, and then you see, oh, there are swastikas on, on either side of it. And I think that's when I was watching it, at least that was when the, the shock came. Um, so, okay. So who put this, who, who put this on? Who organized this event? The, the, organ, the organizing group was, was called the German American Bund. Um, and, um, they were a group uh, largely of German Americans, but, but, uh, not exclusively. And they, uh, 
they were essentially the American Nazi party in 1939. So um, they uh, had camps in Pennsylvania and New York and New Jersey, even out in Wisconsin, places like that. Um, communities uh, where they were espousing Nazi ideas. You know, there, there are, there's video film footage um, and photographs of kids at some of these camps raising swastika flags and learning, you know, the tenets of Nazism and practicing goose stepping across the, the camp yard. And, um, and uh, this was um, not a majority of Americans, but it was a significant minority. And, and beyond the Bund, which was the sort of formal group that was organizing this, the, the ideas of anti-Semitism, of white supremacy, of racism, anti-immigrant philosophies, fascism, I mean, just to sort of embrace of fascism, were, were things that a lot of mainstream Americans embraced or at least flirted with. People like Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford and, um, you know, Father Charles Coughlin had a radio show uh, that reached 30 million Americans at its height um, where he said great things about Hitler and Mussolini. So, um, this was, uh, this was a part of America that then when World War II started and German soldiers started killing American kids, um, we kind of covered up the fact that anybody had ever shared this, this ideology with, with, with the Germans. And so, um, and, and I think the ideas didn't go away. The people who held those ideas didn't go away. We just stopped talking about it for a while. And now we're seeing some of this stuff start to to creep back into our into into the mainstream of our culture. Mm-hmm. So um, I, as we'll talk about a little bit later, the second part of our conversation. I grew up in uh, northern New Jersey, um, and I remember, and I'm Jewish. I remember hearing at least once in my childhood someone telling me a, that the German Bund existed and like kind of what it was. So I remember hearing about that, and I think it um, did have like. I, th- I, I don't, I, th- <laughs> I may be wrong about this, but I think there were, there was a large German presence in Newark, especially, and, uh, that was one of the places where they operated. And then, um, Philip Roth's novel, The Plot Against America, uh, which was published in 2005 or 6, um, also takes up this idea of the, ger- of ger- the German butt in Newark because he sets it in his, uh, childhood of neighborhood of Wequayak in Newark. Um, right. so I was vaguely, I was like vaguely aware of this. Um, I, from my understanding, it was like, oh, let me ask you, was it in some ways like a German cultural organization that, you know, 70, 80 years ago, there were a lot more Americans who either immigrated from Germany or their parents immigrated from Germany. And part of it was just like, we're, you know, we're celebrating German culture. And right now Adolf Hitler is chancellor of Germany. Um, so, you know, this, there may have been a similar, you know, Polish, uh, cultural organization that was celebrating whatever was or happening Italian in Poland. Or, right, yeah, in, right. in Poland before Germany invaded Poland in 19, later on in 1939. Uh, is that a misimpression or, or all these people who were in the crowd and were uh, giving the Heil Hitler salute, were they committed Nazis or could they yeah. have just been, you know, average people who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of my German heritage. Well, um, they're definitely, the German heritage component was, was real. I mean, that was a part of it, but, um, but all you have to do is just listen to the things that are being said from the stage by Fritz Kuhn, who was the leader of the Bund and who billed himself as the American Fuhrer. All you have to do is just listen to what he said. 
uh, to realize that it wasn't just people who liked drinking German beer and eating schnitzel or whatever. It, it was, it was, uh, very anti-Semitic. It was white supremacy. It was, it was anti-minority groups. It was, um, uh, and in fact, they considered themselves to be the true Americans. I mean, this, this rally was not billed as a German American rally. It was billed as a, as an American rally. And they, they talk at the rally about the importance of taking America back from the minorities who are ruining it and reclaiming the, um, uh, you know, American culture, reclaiming American institutions for white Gentile people. I mean, they, they're explicit about the importance of labor unions of government positions being held by whites, by Gentiles. So it, it, it really, it would be a misunderstanding to say that the people just didn't understand what was happening. Um, but, but you are right that, that there was a cultural component to it. And in fact, I think that the cultural component limited the, the ability of this group's ideology to spread even farther in America. Um, because I think there were Italians and Irish and lots of other groups who said, ah, I'm not German, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to the, I'm not going to go to the Bund events. Um, while, uh, while today, I think the people who are spreading these ideas are much more dangerous to our country because they're not doing it as outsiders. They're, they're doing it as insiders. They have American sensibilities, American sense of humor. They, you know, use memes and, and, uh, you know, American culture. They've appropriated American culture and, and, and like this group, the icons of American patriotism. And they don't have German accents and they don't refer to the motherland or what a fatherland. It's, it's about taking America back from now it's the Jews and the Muslims and the Mexicans and any other immigrant group. Um, and, uh, I think that's even more dangerous than it was in 1939 in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So let's, let's talk about this person you mentioned, Fritz Kuhn. He's the main person speaking in the, uh, documentary. I, I'd never heard of this person before. Um, he, so who, who is he? He speaks with a German accent. So, right. so I assume he was born in Germany. So who, who, who was that's this right. person? Yeah, so he was the head of the, of the Bund, um, and, uh, he, he definitely has a strong German accent. Um, he was an American citizen though. And, uh, actually, once World War II started, um, he was, uh, convicted of, uh, embezzling money from the Bund, um, which, uh, which landed him in prison. And ultimately he had his citizenship revoked and was ex, uh, exiled to, um, Germany, West Germany after World War II, where he lived the rest of his life and, and, and died. So, um, but in 1939, um, he was a well-known, if, you know, admired by some, loathed by many, um, uh, leader of, of this group and, and, uh, proponent of racist, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, um, ideas. Yeah, so one of the, th you know, he denounces, he, he introduces himself saying something like, you may have heard of me, but if you uh, read about me in the Jewish controlled press, and that's a quote, you know, you think right. I have horns and cloven hooves. Um, so. And the crowd laughs and cheers and, um, you know, he's, he's very good at, at using kind of a sneering, sarcastic humor, 
um, to to undercut the press, to undercut protesters, to undercut any sort of uh, opponents. Yeah, and so yeah, so he a lot of it is about like taking <laughs> taking the country back. Uh, he mentions the. Uh, Jew, the Jew, the Jews also control the labor unions and Moscow and Moscow controls the labor unions as well. Um, yeah. And you know, the press is, is under alien control. Um, okay. So this is when, when you're watching it and you may start hearing some parallels to rhetoric um, from uh, our time. So I guess, right. you know, the, the comparison is, is inescapable with uh, Trump's many, many rallies and, you know, uh, he often, uh, gets on stage and says things, you know, he refers to the, um, you know, the press is the enemy of the people and the failing New York times and they're all liars. And, uh, yeah. So I, I kind of thought like, were, how do you see those parallels? If, if Donald Trump did not become president, if Hillary Clinton had become president, is this a project you would have pursued, uh-huh. uh, at all? Would it have been different in any way? Yeah. Is, it just, is this just up for the, the viewer to, uh, to decide? Yeah. I mean, the movie doesn't mention Donald Trump and it doesn't say anything about current events, but, but, uh, when I saw this footage, I was struck first by how shocking it was that this had happened and that we didn't, most people I know didn't know that it had happened. And second, by how familiar it seemed. I think in, in the last couple of years, we have seen a big rise in, demagogues around the world who attack the press, who scapegoat minorities, who attack, uh, you know, in most cases, immigrants and minority religions and, um, you know, sort of cheer the violence against protesters, <coughs> which we also see in, in the film and um, those kinds of things. They, and they, and they wrap hatred and division in the symbols of patriotism um, and we're seeing it around the world and we see it in America. And, you know, when I watch that footage, Donald Trump comes to mind. Other people may see things differently, but, but to me, the, the parallels with, with him and the way that he, uh, uses these tactics is inescapable, which is not to say that I think Donald Trump is a Nazi. I don't think he's a Nazi, but I think he is a demagogue and that he uses these, these, this rhetoric and these tactics that demagogues have used for a thousand years, attacking third party media, um, and, and, uh, scapegoating minorities and, and, and telling people that they're the true members of whatever the group is, whether it's Germans or Spartans or, or Americans telling the audience, you're the real patriots. And it's these minorities who are, who are trying to come in and ruin your country. That is, um, that's something that people have done a long time. And I think it's something that we need to be really careful about because as you can see in the film, it's very effective at, at whipping up people's emotions. Uh, yeah, there's a, I, there's a quote, um, that maybe a false quote, but it's, it's attributed to Sinclair Lewis. I'm, I just Googled it. It seems like that he did not actually say it, but someone once famously said, uh, when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. Um, right. <laughs> I, I can't help but think, uh, at, you know, one of the things Trump likes doing sometimes is, um, he, uh, wraps himself around the flag. Uh, he gives, right. a, fla- he gives the flag a big hug. 
and, right. and everyone right. seems to, to love it. Uh, right. not, this is one of his innovations. So uh, it's yeah, he, he's he's wrapped. He's not wrapped in the flag. He's wrapping himself around the flag. I don't think Trump is a fascist. I think he's just a like wannabe authoritarian who is not competent enough to actually try to implement authoritarianism. And also the like system of government we have makes it very hard for someone to truly implement authoritarianism. Um, but well, let's hope so. But, yeah. <laughs> um, he certainly is testing the limits uh, and, and has surprised people many times before. I mean, nobody thought he would be the nominee. Nobody thought he would be elected president. There have been so many things that would have brought down any other president in a second, just dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And they just bounce off of him. And so, and the, the willingness of, of even mainstream Republicans to allow him to run roughshod over, over traditions and, and, and institutions, um, has been stunning to me. I, I, people who I thought for sure would stand up to something like this, um, have just given him carte blanche and, and, um, I think it's, I think it's pretty frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a, a like a dramatic point in the in the footage uh, where someone a protester runs on stage. Um, can you talk about that that moment? Sure. And- yeah. So um, you you wouldn't know it from watching the movie, but 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 the the protester is a man named Israel Greenbaum, who is a Jewish um, plumber's assistant from Brooklyn, who went to the rally that night. Um, just to kind of see what was going on. And, um, he said that he did not have plans to try to disrupt it. But once he heard what was being said on stage, he, um, he ran out on stage. Uh, the, the kind of stormtrooper folks who are on the stage grab him and start beating him up. Um, and he's, he's beaten and then his pants are ripped off and he's thrown off the stage. He was eventually arrested that night for disturbing the peace. <coughs> and um, the next day, he had to pay a $25 fine. The New York Times article about, about this um, from 1939, which people can, can read. It's pretty interesting to read the coverage. Um, there are links to it on our website as well, links to the old original articles from 1939. But in one of them, uh, the New York Times describes the magistrate who, who fined him $25 saying – don't you realize that someone could have been hurt by what you did out on stage? And he said, um, don't you realize that someone's going to be hurt by what was being said on stage? And of course, this is 1939. So in the next few years, we would see the murder of literally millions and millions of people. Um, and uh, so, you know, he ended up joining the the American Army, I think, or maybe Navy, um, and, and being a part of World War II, um, and was asked years later, I've, I've been in touch with his grandson, um, but he was asked years later, you know, why did you do what you did? And, and he described what he was seeing and hearing on stage and just said, what would you have done? And I think it's a, um, it's a challenge for all of us to say, hey, if you're in a crisis, where, where the values of your country were being destroyed, you know, and, and the social and political fabric of your country was under attack, what would you do? And, and sometimes if you think about what you might have done in 1939, uh, you can realize that 
somebody's going to be asking us, our children or grandchildren are going to be saying, Hey, in 20, in 2019, granddad, <laughs> what did you do when, when, uh, you know, when the president was saying he wanted to keep people from a certain religion from coming into the country or was declaring emergency powers or, or any of the other dozens of things that, that, that this president does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm like tr- conflicted in how I feel about, about this. I mean, so you, you know, it's the, as you present it, a, a man is on stage and you see him almost immediately, like the brown shirt guys, like leap on top of him and you can see they're beating him up, um, you know, for like five or six guys. And then the cops in their old timey, like long jackets <laughs> run onto stage and they like muscle him off stage. Yeah. You, know, you see that his pants are like, torn off or, or, um, or ripped or something. And, um, and kind of, I, yeah. And so, and then when I went to your website and found out that this was like a Jewish man from Brooklyn who, who later fought, uh, you know, fought in world war two, uh, it lends, um, you know, you can see like how this was, you know, an act of conscience and bravery. Um, but it also reminded me of these times during Trump rallies where like a liberal or leftist protester will come in and they start doing something, and Trump immediately makes a spectacle of it. Um, all the people in the crowd are chanting, you know, and, and as we saw in, at least in 2016, sometimes people in the crowd would start uh, trying to punch or beat the protester, and then they get they get taken out. Um, and yeah, I mean, even just weeks ago, there was a, a camera person from CNN who was who was punched at a at a Trump rally. Yeah, so uh, you know, I don't. <laughs> It's, it's a brave act to, you know, to do this when you know almost definitely you're going to be uh, physically injured. Um, but also, is it, does it just help Trump make him, you know, does it play into his game? Because, um, he, <laughs> he can say, oh, look, they're, you know, look at these people. They're against us. We have to protect ourselves. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> look at these losers. And I, like, I don't know. Trump can play a lot of stuff to make it benefit himself, but the, you know, the, the, I, I feel like the protesters often, um, you know, like usually the protester would be like a person of color. And so, uh, Trump can portray them as like, Oh, look at these animals kind of thing. And let's, and I, I, in 2016, he would say things like, you know, uh, if the, back in my day, this happened, like they'd be flat on their back. And then everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we need to like beat up these, <laughs> you know, these people right. are ungrateful. Right. So I, I just, right. <laughs> do you have any thoughts on that? I, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't, um, I think that protests should always think about what is the most effective way of, of affecting change. Um, but I think that, uh, Donald Trump is a master of, you know, of breaking norms and, and he's a, he's a, a thug, a political thug. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think the answer is to say, well, let's just let him go. I, and, and let's just let his, what he says go unchallenged or let, um, you know, we'll just allow him to do and say the things that he does and says, because I think the destruction to the social fabric of the country by letting him say these things by, by breaking norms and moving the bars. I mean, literally he ran for president on a platform of keeping a minority religion from coming into the country. That's like unfathomable to think that in 2016, somebody running for president could say, 
we are going to put a full and complete stop to Muslims coming into our country and that the, that the whole Republican party should have at that point said, this is totally and absolutely unacceptable. And that should have been the end of his career. And yet people who were afraid that he might come after them or were afraid of the repercussions, um, of, of calling him out for that, uh, shrugged and said for whatever, you know, they, they either said, well, maybe that's bad, but we're going to get our tax bill through, or we're going to get judges on the Supreme court. Or maybe they said, you know what you're saying? Oh, if we attack him, then he's going to attack us. And it's just going to fuel the, the cycle of violence or what, or I, I don't know what rationale people offered, but whatever the rationale was, when somebody says that they're going to exclude people of a minority religion from coming into the United States, a country that is founded by immigrants, that that's first amendment is about free speech and free religion, respect for minority religions. That to me, however they want to spin it is, is not, is not okay. Yeah. And, and part of like how this has played out is like Trump in the campaign said, we're going to shut down, you know, Muslims from coming into the country until we could figure out what, what the hell is going on or something like that was very close yeah. to the exact quote. And then at the very beginning of the Trump presidency, they tried to basically implement that policy and, you know, it sparked all this, you know, people, people and lawyers rushing to airports and, uh, and rallies, uh, you know, one of which I attended, um, against this. And then, so they like withdrew it or there was a court injunction or something. And then like, you know, they fought over in the courts and like not and like nine months later or something, they, they implement like a revised version where it's seven or eight about countries, countries and, yeah. and, and mostly yeah. Muslim majority. And then like, it was, it, it was, there's, there was more of a fight, but then it was eventually affirmed by the Supreme court. So like the, and, and people kind of, I, I feel like people kind of like shrugged at that point. Um, it was, you know, it was almost like the, you know, the, the version they implemented was not as offensive as, and not as plainly unconstitutional as the, you know, shut down Muslim immigration, but right. like they kind of got like at least half a loaf of, of, of what they wanted. And, you know, people were like beaten down by that point or nerd to it. And so it, and there's a new outrage every day. <laughs> and so right. it, it kind of just like, probably but I will say that, that, by that, now that, 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 that I, I think that's that. right. I think that's right. And, and I, I think that, Half a loaf is a lot better than than a full loaf for them. I mean, the the the, the pushback that you're describing um, was crucial in changing the changing the policy, not to the policy that I think it should have been, but they did have to change the policy, and and it also in that pushback and in forcing them to change the policy, it affirmed an American value of respect for minority religions. That, that you can't institute a policy that, that explicitly, uh, forbids, uh, um, Muslims from coming into a country. And so, um, so I would say that's like a perfect example of why it's so important that we all become Isidore Greenbaums. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean running out on stage. For some people, running out on stage might make sense. For other people, it might mean registering voters. For other people, it might mean writing a letter to the editor or talking to their neighbors or, um, or you know, a hundred other things that people get to to do to push for 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 you know respect and decency and 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 American values. So, um, but I think that complacency 
is where we is is the most dangerous part. Um, and when we start to shrug or we start to say, well, I don't want to play into his games or I don't want to get in the mud with him or I don't want to fight with him because he's so gross, then that is when we are surrendering the country to, 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 to people like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what can you just briefly tell us what happened to kind of the German-American Bund after this? So this is early thir- yeah. 1939, September 1939, right. Germany invades yeah. Poland. Uh, was there anything in that per- period before the, the U.S. entered the war where <laughs> people started to be suspicious of the German-American Bund, or did that sure. I mean, there was until after Pearl Harbor? No, even at the time, even when this rally happened, there were plenty of people who saw the Bund as as fascists and anti-Semites. And again, if you go back to the New York Times articles that you can see through, the, through our website, um, there were many, many people, protesters outside, protesters inside, government people who said these people are are crazy and and um mayor laguardia of new york city at the time said that this was the the biggest uh conglomeration of of uh of of uh cooties ever gathered in under one roof and that the way that you the way that you kill cooties is with sunlight and so we can't deny them the right to speak or the right to gather, but we should shine light on what they're saying and, and, and fight back that way. The, um, at the time there was a big debate about whether the, the Bund should be allowed to have a rally like this. And even Jewish groups, uh, um, leading Jewish groups in, in, in America said, these people are anti-Semites, they're anti-democratic, but the difference between America and fascist Germany is that in America, even idiots are allowed to say what they want. <laughs> and so, we don't think, you know, we're not, we're, we support these people's rights to say what they say. Uh, though there was a lot of debate over whether they should be given Madison Square Garden as a platform to say it in. Um, which, which feels also very contemporary where we're having debates about, about, you know, alt-right speakers who are essentially just provocateurs <laughs> trying to, to, to whip things up and should they, I think most people agree that they should be within their constitutional right to say what they think. But the the argument that people are having on campuses is whether they should be given the platform of 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 a you know prestigious college to come and be you know awarded a right to to speak from from uh, to to the students at that college. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I think that's you know a, a connected but slightly separate question. So um, anyway. Uh, the Bund, once World War II started, um, really slipped out of favor. Between the time of this rally, though, and the um, and the start of World War II, these ideas spread wider than just the Bund. I mean, there was another rally in Madison Square Garden uh, where Lindbergh spoke, where um, and and these were the America First people. I mean, it's funny that they're bringing up this that, that the Trump people are bringing up reviving this phrase America first, because literally these were, that was the name of the group that opposed America from getting involved in world war two and, 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 and pushing back on the Nazi, uh, the Nazi mark, you know, advance. And so, uh, it's sort of a weird, I don't know whether they literally don't know their history or whether they do know their history and it's a dog whistle of some sort, but for Trump to be using America first again is like, 
totally bizarre. Well, what I I think the the what was reported was that a a journalist mentioned the phrase "America first to him to Trump in an interview, and then Trump was like, "America first, America first." I like the sound of that, America first. And so it was just yeah. Trump's ignorance, and yeah. also like you know, for people who don't know the history, it's like, yeah, America first. I like America. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be America yeah. second. It might as well be America first. Yeah. Well, I do hope that one small thing that this short film is able to do is just to say, hey, let's do know our history. Let's let's spend a few minutes thinking about our history because um, not to try to beat up on America or say America is this bad country or whatever, but just to say, hey, we are fallible. We are vulnerable just like other people are. And, and if we, if we are complacent, uh, about defending American values, um, defending the rights of minorities, defending those sorts of things, the rights to free press and to protest, um, then, uh, we can see what happened in 1939 when groups like this, when, when demagogues use these kinds of tactics. And, um, maybe that can, can be a cautionary tale or a warning for, for people that see similar tactics being used today. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I think those are all the questions I have on A Night at the Garden. I encourage everyone to uh, check it out at uh, the, the website. It's free to watch. And um, and there's the other supplemental material um, at the website kind of telling the, some of the – giving more information about the, the uh, event and the people who appear on screen. Um, is there anything else you want to say about that before we also talk about another documentary that you made? Yeah, I don't think so. I think you covered it. Okay, cool. So the other documentary uh, is called Street Fight, and you made was it came out in the early aughts? Is it two thousand two? Well, so the film, the election was in two thousand two, okay. but it took me a couple of years to to raise money and edit it, and it was my first film, so I was literally learning how to edit at the same time as I was editing this film. Um, so it came out actually in two thousand five is when it is when it premiered. Okay, so um, it it's called Street Fight. It uh, documents the mayoral election in Newark, New Jersey, in two thousand two between the incumbent, uh, the Honorable Mayor Sharp James, and a upstart count co- city council member. That's what he was. That's right. Named, yep. named Cory Booker. Um, so probably <laughs> so. It's just uh, funny to think that you you picked this as your first feature, and now um, you know, and now Cory Booker is running for president. And is Sharp James still alive? Um, he is alive. He ended up going to prison. Spent a little time in prison after uh, after uh, being the mayor of Newark, um, and uh, but now is alive and well. Okay, well, I'm wishing the best. He was kind of so I grew like I said I grew up in uh, Essex County, New Jersey, uh, where Newark is, and uh, Sharp James was always he was always referred to in like his campaign commercials as the honorable mayor sharp james and it's such a strange name it always stuck in my head the honorable mayor sharp james and he was kind of like uh i mean a throwback to like machine politics or something like he kind of like ruled ruled newark with an iron fist um and so how did you how did you how did you find cory booker and decide that he would be someone interesting to film and why did you decide like this was the project you wanted to work on um, I also grew up in New Jersey, um, and uh, when I uh, was in college, I took some time off and set up a literacy project in Newark, so I knew the city a little bit, um, and I think Sharp James was in his second term at that point, um, but uh, um, but I actually had positive a view of Sharp James at that point. I, I didn't realize how 
corrupt and, and, and sort of ruthless he was as a person. Um, but I was invited, my brother raises money for a lot of Democrats and he, um, invited me to a fundraiser and I met Corey there and, um, talked to him for a few minutes and thought, wow, he seems like an interesting guy. Um, and so when he announced that he was going to run for mayor, I thought that might make an interesting movie. And, um, you know, there had been a number of political documentaries about elections, but they were all national elections. So it was the war room and it was journeys with George and things like that, which were about TV ads and spin doctors. And, but there hadn't been an election about a local, or at least not one that I was aware of about a local urban election that was, you know, door to door campaigning and that sort of thing. And so I thought that would be interesting. Um, and I also thought, uh, that the racial dynamics of that election were interesting. So around the country in these early, in those early 2000s, there were a number of young black leaders who had been raised after the civil rights movement who had had the benefits of going to Ivy League schools and being raised in the suburbs and things like that, who were taking on the old guard. Um, and it was happening in Newark. It was, ha- it had just happened. Uh, Kwame Kilpatrick had just been elected the mayor of Detroit. Um, Arthur Davis and Harold Ford and, and of course this young state senator named Barack Obama was, uh, you know, was, was, was part of that group. And so I thought that that dynamic, um, was, was worth exploring as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> So I, yeah, so I saw the movie, it must have, I think I saw it on DVD or something. Actually, no, maybe it was not, was it a, an early Netflix, um, it was, yeah. Streaming Netflix? Maybe that's when I saw it. So it would have been more than 10 years ago. So I don't remember it super well, but, um, I remember yeah, that. It's still on Netflix now. It, it was off for a little while and back. And so all those, but it's, people can see it on Netflix now. Yeah. So, so check it out. Uh, it's interesting regardless. And the fact that Booker is now, uh, uh you know, has a, shot at becoming president it's it's certainly more interesting um and you see him you know i as i recall you see him kind of like wearing gym shorts and sitting like at his kitchen table and right. uh, late at night and kind of like mulling over what he should do um okay so so booker is you know at the time he was kind of seen as like um a carpetbagger or because he didn't grow up in newark Right. Uh, but he he grew up in the suburbs, and yeah, he went to I think Stanford and Yale Law School. That's right. And then and then he came in um, to uh, to live in Newark, and he did stuff that. Well, so he he lived in a a project essentially um, <clears throat> that was poorly maintained. Was it? The, what was it called? The brick, uh, brick towers, brick towers, which I remember from my childhood, you know, we would drive by whenever we would drive into New York city. Um, and, and they were, I think they were later demolished. So he, you know, kind of like was live, you know, he was like walking the walk, uh, of wanting to represent, um, this very, you know, city that has a lot of struggles and challenges. And, and James like kind of portrayed him as like an outsider. Um, there was, I guess kind of like colorism was part of it because uh, Booker is more light skinned than James. I think uh, James implied that Booker was Jewish because he Booker like worked with, um, he was like a member of, or actually did he run the, um, the was it like a, the Jewish the Lacan society yeah, yeah, when like, he was a Rhodes scholar. Yeah. Right. Which is another unusual feature of him. Yeah. So he right. knows a lot about Judaism. So there was a lot of like weird 
you know, this is not just a standard um, mayoral election. Uh, there was a lot of weird, weird stuff happening there. Um, yeah. So what do you, is there anything that you remember? Like, what do you remember from, from the race that shows us what, you know, who Cory Booker might be if he does it, does attain uh, the presidency? Um, well, interestingly, you know, there are however many 20 people that are running for, for, for the, in the primary, but if he does get nominated, um, I think running against Donald Trump will be surprisingly similar to, to running against Sharp James. Um, because, you know, Sharp James was a, Corey and Sharp were both Democrats, both black, but, um, Sharp James was somebody who could just tell a lie over and over and over until it started to feel like it was true. And in the movie, he would claim that Corey had raised way more money than he had and that, and that, I don't know, there were just a number of lies that he told over and over, which were easily verifiable as untrue. But by repeating them over and over, they just became accepted as true. And I think we see the same thing with the president today. And um, Sharp James was also um, somebody who was very divisive, who was very much about insiders and outsiders. And we have to defend ourselves against the outsiders. So in Newark, the argument was that, you know, the white Jews are coming in to try to take over the city. They're trying to buy the city. And um, and so uh, so Corey. um had to, you know, push back on that. Um, and, uh, similarly, I think that, um, in, in an obvious way that, that Sharp James does this, I mean, that, uh, Donald Trump does the same thing, you know, we're being invaded by Mexicans and, and we need to be the real Americans. Um, and, uh, um, so I, I think there are some, a lot of similarities between, between those two guys. And it'll be interesting to see whether Corey's approach to, to, to fighting elections is is effective this time, right? So, um, you know, spoiler spoiler alert: he loses the two thousand two race, the one that you capture, but he won in two thousand six. Um, becomes becomes mayor of Newark. Uh, Sharp James is indicted for corruption and goes to prison. Um, and I was, I, I kind of like his persona for as mayor was kind of like he got a lot of media attention because he's a charismatic guy and he would do these things like someone would call 311 saying their snow had it hadn't been shoveled and he would like go out with a shovel and shovel their walk or, so, or something and one there's one time he ran into a building that was on fire to help people so he was kind of seen as this, like, like chase down a, a bank robber at one point yeah like, so he's like this kind of superhero and, yeah. like he'll fix your problem for you himself and then but then other people were like you know this is kind of just like a stunt too to distract from the fact that, you know, the Newark schools are still having problems and the, you know, there's still a lot of crime there. Um, but I think he, you know, cannily played it so that he could, um, he, he had a national profile and, um, he won, you know, he won a Senate seat. Um, was it Frank Lattenberg's seat that he, that he won? That's right. Yeah. Um, so Frank Lattenberg was like a beloved, um, uh, New Jersey uh, political icon who, like, died, I think he died in office at like age ninety one or something. Um, and so Booker took took that seat. And you know, since so so since then, I don't know his persona. 
it depends who you talk to. I think some people view him as like a complete phony. Um, and, uh, and other people, view, yeah, still kind of see that, um, you know, the guy who will like run out to shovel your, shovel your walk for you. Um, right. How do you, how do you think, well, what's your perspective on him now that he's, you know, been in the Senate for like five, five years? Um, you know, clearly being a senator is not about shoveling walks and saving people from burning buildings. And I think Corey knows that too. I mean, he did those things, but those were not, and those were the things that got him a lot of national attention, but they weren't the main way that he was spending his time. Uh, you know, he wasn't just like sitting in the office at 311 <laughs> to like run out and whatever, change people's flat tires. Um, I think that the people who think he's a phony misunderstand him. Uh, and, you know, I haven't decided who I'm going to support in the election. Um, I, I, I want to hear from a lot of folks. And um, and I also know Corey much better than I know anybody else that's running just from by merit of having followed him very closely when he was unknown 32-year-old running for mayor. Um, but, uh, you know, he's done a lot of things during his political career that have hurt him, um, but that he thought were the right choices. So in the early 2000s, he was aggressively in favor of, of gay marriage, for instance, when that was a losing, a losing position in Newark. The, the, even the Democrats in Newark did not support gay marriage. Nobody, very few people on the national level supported gay marriage. Obama didn't support it. Hillary didn't support it. Biden didn't support it. None of those people. And Cory Booker said, I think this is a, a civil rights question and, and I'm in favor. And he hung a, a rainbow flag above city hall, um, knowing that it was going to cost him votes, but knowing also that in his heart, it was a, a civil rights issue. And so, and similarly, like, you know, he's a vegan who, who, who works, who like, has written a number of, of, of amendments to bills that help um, animal welfare, you know. And if you're running for president in Iowa, a, 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 <laughs> that is not helpful. Like, that is, that's going to hurt him, actually. Yeah. And the only reason he does that is not because animals vote, not because animals give him, the animal lobby doesn't give him a lot of money or any of that. He just thinks that is the correct moral position. And so he's willing to, to take, to lose votes for that. <clears throat> of course, I'm going to disagree with him about certain things. And there's nobody who's, who's ever going to be in, in a national political office who I agree with about everything. I'll think that he makes some wrong choices, but, but the people who say that he's a phony, um, I think they just don't understand him. There's something about his manner that, that rubs certain people the wrong way. And I think it's, you know, he's a very emotional person and he feels things very deeply. And I think sometimes that comes across to people as like sanctimonious or false. Um, but I think that if you spend time with him, watching him up close, um, uh, that, that, um, that you would not, almost nobody who's, who's spent a lot of time with him and watched him up close would say he's a phony. They might not like him. They might have things that they disagree with him about, but, um, 
but I, I don't think phony is, is the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, um, I'm just remembering, I think the only time I, I saw him in the flesh was at a 2007-ish rally, um, at which he, uh, in Newark, in which he introduced Obama, um, for a, for a, you know, pre-election campaign event. Um, maybe this will be the last question about Booker, you know, part of the, um, part of the uh, legacy, <laughs> the great heritage of the Garden State is corruption. And uh, there's, it's probably one of the most corrupt states in the country. Um, there hasn't been, you know, um, Sharp James went to jail. Um, Bob Menendez, like, got off on what he's, although he seems very guilty of this weird uh, kind of bribery uh, thing. And uh, the Governor McGreevy had to resign because of an affair that also had, like, campaign finance violations attached to it. Um, and so, yeah, it goes, goes far back, uh, New Jersey corruption. Like, I haven't ever, I haven't heard anything directly about, about, um, Booker, but I feel like if, I mean, he must have made some deals as the mayor of Newark that if exposed in the national press would not look like so great. Like, do you think this is, and, and I think the last New Jersey politician to become president was Woodrow Wilson. Um, so, yeah. so it's been a while. Um, <laughs> what do you think about like the New Jersey stain? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I agree that New Jersey politics are pretty dirty. But Corey strikes me, and again, we're not best friends. I don't, you know, but I've watched him pretty closely. I, I don't think he is, um, he's not tempted by a lot of the things that, that other people are tempted by. I don't think he was, he has ever tried to enrich himself through his, you know, through his office. Um, and, I think he always had in the back of his mind – I mean, listen, if he'd wanted to make a ton of money at 32, he could have gone to work for a tech company or gone to work for a, for a Goldman Sachs or whatever. He's like a Yale Law Rhodes Scholar Stanford star. Like he could have easily made a million dollars a year very soon and, and, and he decided not to do that. And so um, – I'd be surprised if some, you know, corruption scandal emerges. Uh, I, I would definitely be surprised if that happened. Mm. Um, okay, I think those are all, all the Cory Booker questions I have. Um, so uh, thank you so much for coming out and, ta- and talking uh, about uh, these very interesting topics. And I, I, yeah. I mentioned it before, but if you're interested in the intersection of New York, New Jersey and American Nazism, uh, the book to read is Philip Roth's uh, Plot Against America, which is like a counter history yeah, yeah. of what if uh, Charles Lindbergh had become president in 1936. That's, that's <laughs> really good. Um, yeah. So, um, so great. Anaya the Garden. Great to talk with you. Yeah. Anaya All the links will link to your other stuff below. Uh, so thank you for coming on and thanks to all our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you next time. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.